The State of the Union is the most watched presidential speech every year. In it, the president has an opportunity to cast his vision for the country. So what is President Biden's vision? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. President Biden recently gave his State of the Union address. And the the number of viewers was way down from last year. And, you know, the House is in the Republican hands, which makes it very different as well. Um, but still, it was how his opportunity to cast the vision for the country. So before we start talking about specific clips, are there any overall comments? I mean, just kind of a, what was the flavor and tone of it? I thought it was, a as far as speeches go, I thought it was a better speech than the one that he gave last year. I thought he seemed more comfortable there. If you if you ignore the content, if you ignore the truth value of the statements that he's making, I mean, he seems like the kind of guy I could hang out with and, you know, be sort of fun to listen to. See, it's really interesting because, I mean, I was talking to Charles and he said the same thing, that he thought the speech was better. And I actually thought it was worse. But the reason I thought it was worse wasn't for the reasons you're talking about. The reason I thought it was worse is I thought that there was no – like last year, he had the overarching thing theme of Ukraine, right. and he was pushing that. And it was actually – he was doing a lot more vision casting last year. Not that I agreed with his vision any more than I did this year. But it, this year, it just felt like it was just all these, like, picayune things that just don't matter. I mean, like, little minor things. And to me, it was just this this hour of triviality. I mean, I, I completely get what you're you're going for there. and And part of it, I think, is – you know, and he he just can't lean on Ukraine like he could last year. I don't right. think that America's behind him the same sort of way. So he's got it. He has to cast it for all of these domestic issues turn inward. And so for he just went with this folksy tone about it that that he managed to pull off in sort of a a Donald Trump or George W. Bush kind of way. He did not try and do the lofty Obama esque sort of approach it wasn't that sort of he, he wasn't aiming for that rhetorically and, and in that sense i think he hit his mark now when you get into the details of what was said which we'll do there's issues right i just thought that it seems to me it's just an opportunity and i'm not saying it needs to be it needs to be i'm saying it's more useful to have a state of a, a union a state of the union speech that actually has substance to it and it just felt like there was no no substance there so my guess is that his his uh, you know ratings will will drop next year. He'll have you know they drop by about twenty five percent this year. The number of people that watched, and I think it'll continue to go down because I mean, V doesn't say anything. Why listen? Right. But but when have the unions ever said anything? Oh, there's some state of the unions that were really significant. I actually thought Trump's first like, state of the union was pretty good. I actually thought he actually. Right. I mean, I thought. I actually thought it was a good State of the Union, and I actually thought he actually addressed real things that he wanted to deal with and that he was going to do, and a lot of them he actually did. I remember Reagan when he was speaking, and he had all of a sudden he has a line of people carrying stacks of paper in to pile up the budget, and goes, "This is ridiculous." Right. I mean, I, you know, you can do it without even being that rhetorically. You know, you can you can use other gimmicks, but he basically had a real agenda that he was pushing, which was to fix the budget. Well, some of us weren't alive for that. True. <laughs> some of us were. <laughs> True. <laughs> Though we were maybe too young to really appreciate it. 
I mean, the reason why I said that I, you know, the reason I actually thought it was good was actually slightly different than Jonathan's. So, like, last year, he came in with a very, it was a sort of, he was he was more angry. He was more he was kind of more focused. He was you know, and he he pumped up his base in a certain way. This year, I think he still satisfied his base, but it was kind of by looking like he was willing to play with the Republicans, but also looking like he kind of got one up over the Republicans in the and you know, he, he sort of looked like he won the exchange with them. The people who really like him and are pulling for him, it probably satisfied them in a real way. I, I mean, I think the thing that stood out to me that kept saying over and over again was let's finish the job that that was kind of his his theme of oh you know we started on all these great things we just have to finish them and that's his 2024 i mean that's he's running for re-election that's that's his campaign theme for 2024 even though he hasn't announced yet and it's possible with all the other things because it's clear the party a lot of the party doesn't want him so you're seeing other things in there but i mean he was trotting out his campaign theme and just repeating it over and over and over again so that when he starts to say I'm running for office and says the same thing, I need to finish the job, that, you know, he's he's laying the groundwork. I mean, some real differences between the two, at least, was, you know, this year he spent a lot of time being a lot more collegial. Last year he had an introductory speech. He just mentioned a few people in his, you know, he mentioned the names of the people. This year he had like 12 paragraphs, you know, mentioning each, mentioning the speaker, mentioning the first lady, mentioning the, you know, Mitch McConnell, you know, talking through each of the different people, you know, Jeffries, uh, you know, honoring Pelosi. I mean, he, you know, it was it was a much more kind of a collegial tone, much, much more friendly, much more, you know, the, the recognition that he doesn't necessarily have the house this year, but I mean, he was he was doing it. To, he was coming in with a much more friendly, open tone. And see, I think that I think it was the mo- one of the most antagonistic speeches is at the same time. So he has this tone that's tried to carry across to the American people. Yep. But it was a vicious tone for the people in the audience. I mean, it was a vicious tone for the right. for the representatives especially. I mean, it was absolutely vicious and he was saying things that he knew he would be angry. He says in a very collegial way, but at the same time they were very specific lies that were trying to damage people. Yes. And he knew what he was doing and it was a very strategic speech. Yes. Which a lot of times you don't think of uh, President Biden is that politically strategic, but he was very high in the Senate for a long time for a reason. I mean, he did make a comment in there at one point about how he has been in politics longer than pretty much everybody else in the room, and that's true. So, right, you learn something, right? As as much as the Republican rhetoric is how stupid he is, you know, that can't be true, right? I mean, one of the other things that really stood out was last year, Ukraine was like one-fifth of the speech. It was mentioned at least 20 times, a huge section. This year, it's meant, you know, the word is said only five times. One of the times, it's in reference to inflation only, and it's probably like one-twenty-fifth of the speech at best. And so, I mean, that's a real shift. And I mean, last year, he was a president ready to go to war in some ways. This year, he's he knows he can't spend any time. He can't spend any political capital on them. He mentions it in the sense of we're going to keep supporting them, but... He, I mean, it, it was a, a tiny part of his speech compared to last year. And it's, you know, what struck me in that part, though, is that, I mean, his his rhetoric was very dangerous. I mean, he's destroying our capabilities in a lot of ways. He's showing to China that we don't have the capability to drive Russia out because we're giving pretty much all our newest weapons, with the exception of, of fighter jets, to them. And that's not enough to drive out Russia, which has to be a real encouragement to China. But one thing he knows is he doesn't need to convince anybody in the Senate or the House of Representatives. They'll keep shoveling money at it. 
Right. And so he, you know, he didn't want to raise it to the American people because it keeps getting less and less approval rating for the American people. And he's already sold the people that actually vote on it. So it's best just to, like, try to make it go away. Right. Without going away. Right. So why don't we listen to what he had to say on the economy? I ran for president to fundamentally change things, to make sure our economy works for everyone so we can all feel that pride in what we do. To build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out, not from the top down. Because when the middle class does well, the poor have a ladder up and the wealthy still do very well. We all do well. So let's look at the results. We're not finished yet by any stretch of the imagination, but unemployment rate is at 3.4%, a 50-year low. We've already created, your help, 800,000 good-paying manufacturing jobs, the fastest growth in 40 years. For too many decades, we imported projects and exported jobs. Now, thanks to what you've all done, we're exporting American products and creating American jobs. Inflation has been a global problem because the pandemic disrupted our supply chains and Putin's unfair and brutal war in Ukraine disrupted energy supplies as well as food supplies, blocking all that grain in Ukraine. But we're better positioned than any country on earth right now. But we have more to do. But here at home, inflation is coming down. Here at home, gas prices are down $1.50 from their peak. Food inflation is coming down, not fast enough, but coming down. Inflation has fallen every month for the last six months, while take-home pay has gone up. Additionally, over the last two years, a record 10 million Americans applied to start new businesses, 10 million. Some of the things that he said there, like the unemployment, I like especially the line of we're at near record lows of black unemployment and Hispanic unemployment. He was very quick to talk about how he gained back all the jobs from COVID, but he didn't say who actually set the record for black unemployment and Hispanic unemployment because it was Donald Trump. And he's almost gotten it back to where it was. Right. And so, you know, he takes a lot of credit for things that that were really because of the government damaging the U.S. economy. I mean, COVID was a huge amount of damage to the U.S. economy. And, you know, he's very quick to take credit for things that are just you reopen and people get hired again. Right. If you choke a person to the point where they can't breathe and they almost die and then you let them start breathing again, they started breathing again really fast. The increase of how they went from where they were almost dying to feeling better was the most rapid increase ever. It was but, one of the happiest moments of their life. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, that's right. I mean, you kind of ignore the fact that you choked the life out of it in the first place. Right. I think it uses the, the thing about 100,000 new manufacturing jobs. Well, like 84,000 of those were rehires from, you know, right. from because of COVID. He also doesn't talk about how many people moved from, if you look at labor statistics, you know, the percentage of the, you know, that's not in the workforce that's gone up by several million as well over the past several years. I mean, the number, you know, the, and so, you know, I mean, so whenever they track unemployment, there are people who have moved from not seeking work and that's increased, not, not massively, but, but, but a pretty, I mean, when you move several million more into that category, that's pretty significant. I mean, anytime you hear somebody talking about the unemployment rate, realize that that statistic is just notoriously fraught with, with all sorts of, of, Manipulation? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking for dramatic it's the words. the equivalent of gerrymandering on the political. You know I mean? <laughs> if you know the famous Mark Twain quote, that's it. <laughs> so um, it's just, it's one of those cases where you can use that, you can trot it out, and you can always make it sound good. 
there's always some way you can make that statistic work in your favor. Right. Because they like, you know, it's like, well, the people don't have jobs, but they're not looking for jobs anymore, so we're going to take them off. And there's games like that that they play that make make it so that it's not very true. Yeah, when you, if you actually want to talk about something interesting, talk about the number of men between 18 and 40 who have just left the workforce and have no intention of reentering it. Right. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's that's really bad. That's high. at that's an all time high. That's right. another podcast in itself that would be worth doing. Yeah. Is how, how can you have a 20% of the men in that age group or something like that never intending to work right. in their whole life? I mean, that's pretty shocking. So, yeah, when you depress the number of people that are your potential employees by allowing people to say, well, I'll just live without working, yeah, it really changes your, your unemployment rate. Right. And, I mean, the other thing that he, you know, you said unemployment, they, they play the same games with the inflation rate. Only people still see the inflation, but they play games. And, you know, he, so he says, you know, it's going down for six months. Well, that was until two weeks after the State of the Union speech, and then it went back up. Right. And so it wasn't like actually sustainable. It's not on a downward trajectory. It's just you know, shuffled some around. things around so that you could have it down for the State of the Union. Exactly. And, and isn't a lot of that gas prices, which were really high, and then the, the gas prices fall. But, you know, that's uh, that's how they count inflation. But that's not really fair because gas is always pretty volatile. Well, they have three different numbers and they report right one with everything, one with with just eliminating gas and housing, I think it is, and then one with with just holding the things that they think are important, and then they just report whichever inflation rate is meets their political agenda. And so it's very much, it's very deceitful. And what they don't print is the actual inflation rate of how much money they're putting out, which they right. know, but just don't put out. Right. They refuse to publish that. And that used to be a number that was reported regularly. Right. And so they intentionally did it so that people wouldn't know how they were inflating the money. Right. So you have to look at these other things for inflation, which really isn't inflation. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but obviously he's talking about all these things about how inflation is going to come down. But the way he's spending, inflation's not going to come down. There's no indication that inflation will come down. But they'll even And if it does, it's because people are stopping him from doing everything he wants to do. Right. Or people just get poor. I mean, there is another way that prices have to drop because people simply can't afford things. And so, you know, that's that's what the that's basically what the Fed does is they keep increasing in the the interest rates so your money's all consumed in housing and other things, in which case then you stop buying other things. So basically you collapse the economy so prices drop. Your inflation is still increasing, but all of a sudden you can measure differently because you're measuring based on price. I don't know if we're going to play the specific clip, but I mean, in the in this, he talked about bringing manufacturing jobs back. And one of the things he goes on to talk about subsequently is buying America first. And what he's really talking about when he's talking about bringing manufacturing jobs back isn't really buying America first. It's about buying union first. And, and that's, you know, we just did an episode a while back on unions, and we kind of talked about the problem with unions is government injustice. And what he is absolutely talking about is trying to implement, you know, unjust, you know, greater levels of injustice with unions and with causing, the, you know, people who are part of unions to be favored, people who are not part of unions to not be favored, creating ways for more businesses to become unionized that are, that are not even democratic you know, that are like, you know, through the like things like the PRO Act. And so, I mean, he's, he's really talking about some negative aspects of, of furthering the injustice of unions that have been going on for a while. So with the PRO Act, I mean, he's talking about basically nationalizing something that's being tried out in California. Well, it did pass and is, is being implemented in California right now. 
and it's one of the key elements for all of the supply chain issues that you're hearing about. So when you think about all the supply chain problems, one big part of that was what California did, and now he wants to just nationalize that. Yeah. So let's bring the supply chain issues to the whole nation. Whatever state you're in, it's coming to you. Yeah. And this is one of those things that, you know, he was he was pretty tactically you know, smart here, because what he's doing is he's saying something like the federal government should always buy American products. Which is something Donald Trump said, right? Which is something Donald Trump said. But the Republicans sit there and going, what he means is let's expand all the unions. I'm not for that. But everybody watching at home is thinking, so these people don't want to buy America first? I right. mean, it's he's putting them in this situation where they're applauding for things because or that they either don't applaud and then all the Americans look at them and go, what, you don't want to buy American? Right. Or they're, you know, or they do applaud and Biden's going, you support the PRO Act and now you won't vote for it. And so it was pretty... He was pretty uh, vicious in his speech that he was putting people intentionally in a position. Right. I mean, he is he is very not bipartisan. He is trying to create and drive partisan divides, just like he did last summer with his speech in front of the Philadelphia Independence Hall. Is just he's he's very 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 partisan and very very vicious in his partisanship. He's not trying to get some compromise bills. And it's really important to notice these types of kind of political equivocation where you're going to, you know, you're going to use a phrase and you're going to use a phrase. And it's and if you know anything, you know, they're lying. But the uninformed, I mean, you'll, you'll notice it when your children watch things with you because your children will hear something. They'll go, isn't that a good thing? You know what I mean? And, and so, I mean, it's, it's always playing for those who all they listen for is the form of words. All they listen for is what the words sound like. They're not thinking, they're not looking for the details. They're not asking further questions. That's who this is designed for. And I mean, and it's, and it's very effective. And another podcast we need to do sometime is why you want a republic and not a democracy. Right. Because what he's using language there works in a democracy because all the people go, because they don't have time to think about it. They don't have time to research it. So they just go, that sounds good. We should buy American. And they don't know the details. What he's actually trying to do is drive union pricing into everything right. and basically expand the unions. Too many of you. Lay in bed at night like my dad did, staring at the ceiling, wondering what in God's name happens if, his, if your spouse gets cancer or your child gets deadly ill or something happens to you. What are you going to have get money to pay for those medical bills? Or are you going to have to sell the house or try to get a second mortgage on it? I get it. I get it. With the Inflation Reduction Act that I signed into law, we're taking on powerful interest to bring health care costs down so you can sleep better at night with more security. You know, we pay more for prescription drugs than any nation in the world. Let me say it again. We pay more for prescription drugs than any major nation on Earth. For example, one in 10 Americans has diabetes. Many of you in this chamber do and in the audience. But every day, millions need insulin to control their diabetes so they can literally stay alive. Insulin's been around for over 100 years. The guy who invented it didn't even patent it because he wanted it to be available for everyone. It cost the drug companies roughly $10 a vial to make that insulin. Packaging and all, you may get up to $13. But Big Pharma has been unfairly charging people hundreds of dollars, four to $500 a month 
making record profits. Not anymore. We capped the cost of insulin at $35 a month for seniors on Medicare. Look, there are millions of other Americans who do not or are not on Medicare, including 200,000 young people with type 1 diabetes and need this insulin to stay alive. Let's finish the job this time. Let's cap the cost of insulin for everybody at $35. And big Pharma is still going to do very well, I promise you all. I promise you they're going to do very well. This law, so, this law also caps and won't even go into effect until 2025. Costs, out-of-pocket drug costs for seniors on Medicare at a maximum of $2,000 a year. You don't have to pay more than $2,000, no matter how much your drug costs are. Because you know why? You all know it. Many of you, like many in my family, have cancer. You know the drugs can range from $10,000, dollars $15,000 for the cancer drugs. And if drug prices rise faster than inflation, drug companies are going to have to pay Medicare back the difference. Or finally, we're finally giving Medicare the power to negotiate drug prices. Bringing down, bringing down prescription drug costs doesn't just save seniors money. It cuts the federal deficit by billions of dollars, by hundreds of billions of dollars. Because these prescription drugs are drugs purchased by Medicare to make keep their commitment to the seniors. Well, guess what? Instead of paying four or five hundred bucks a month, you're paying 15. That's a lot of savings for the federal government. It strikes me as interesting when he talks about health care costs that he always talks about insulin. And let's be serious. Insulin is a pretty small percentage of health care cost. That isn't what's driving most of the health care cost. And, and it's like this issue that he can go to so that he doesn't have to deal with what really drives the health care costs. Instead, he talks about the side issue that's and then he talks about how much it spends that it costs when you're on Medicare for prescription drugs. Sorry, there's I think it's a $7,000 cap. So what he was saying wasn't truthful. And so he's creating all these stories that, you know, it's like it's probably that he's trying to personalize it so people don't think about the details. Right. And it's kind of making it's, – it's making mountains out of molehills in a sense because, it, I mean, it, and it's not, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. But in the end, it's a really effective use to make something, like you said, it makes something personal. But where he's talking about you're laying in bed and you're worried about cancer. You're laying in bed and you're worried about, I mean, the things that you're, I mean, no one's laying in bed at night going, oh my goodness, the thing that's going to destroy us is I'm going to have to do insulin. I mean, that's not, the, like you said, that's not, the, I'm not saying no one is. There are people who do worry about it. But I'm just saying, like you said, that is not, that is not the fear that everyone has is I might get diabetes. And earlier in the speech, he said he was a capitalist. But this proves that he's not. Because if you were a capitalist and you go, well, it's $10, $13, he said maybe, for a vial of insulin. But yet they're selling it for hundreds of dollars. That means the government has distorted the market right. so that somebody can charge hundreds of dollars. The right solution is let's get the government out of the distortion of the market that's driving those price increases. What his instead, what he says is, we're going to have Medicare and Medicaid come in and get more into the market to set prices. When the government sets prices, it is pretty much universally true. And every government in the world, when the government sets prices, prices go up. They don't go down.
And so for 20 years, everybody said, this is a really dumb idea. All the presidents would trot it out. Let's let them negotiate prices. But basically, when they negotiate prices, they will set the price in the market. It is why we have the healthcare inflation rate that we do, is because Medicare comes in, they're 45%, something like that, Medicare and Medicaid, of, of all healthcare spending. So whatever price they pay, everybody else sets their prices off of that. And so that's what they're doing in everything else. And now they're saying, we're going to do that with drugs as well. So if I'm sitting there, if I'm, if I'm one of the suits at Big Pharma, the, the evil Big Pharma, I'm okay with him saying this. You're thrilled with him I saying am this. Thrilled. I, I am willing to be the whipping boy and called Big Pharma because I know my profits are just going to go up because of this. How much money did the federal government transfer to Big Pharma with COVID? I mean, that's what it mostly was in terms of the money. It was a huge transfer of money to Big Pharma. So to pretend now like Big Pharma isn't going to profit off of this, every time they go in to mess with the healthcare, Big Pharma profits and Big Healthcare profits. They want it because it always drives prices up. You can see it when you go and look at over-the-counter drugs. You'll go in and you'll see like the name brand version of drugs. And right beside it, you'll see, in a, if you're in Walmart, you'll see an Equate brand that's like a fraction of it. And there's this part of it where this would be going on with insulin. This would be happening with insulin. There would be insulin that was already very cheap. But the government he is the one. even said right. that, that there is no patent for it. Anybody can make insulin. The right. problem is you can't get the government to approve you selling it. Right. That's where the issue is. It's not in the production of the insulin. It's easy. Everybody knows it's how to just do like it. When you had the baby f- it's just like when you had the baby formula shortage a while back, and the government's like, we need to come in and fix it. The entire problem was because the government wouldn't let other people who were making formula that was perfectly fine, they wouldn't let them sell it. They wouldn't let them sell it to Americans. There was no shortage of baby formula. There was a shortage of government-approved baby formula, and that was the problem. And even the government-approved baby formula, it had the wrong nutrition information on because it was for a different country, even though it was exactly the same stuff, and that it was illegal for them to put a sticker on it right. with the right nutritional information. Right. So they couldn't sell it. It was completely government-manufactured, the problem. And that's what they're going to do with healthcare, and that's what they continue to do with healthcare. And part of the solution of it is, he talks about it later, I think, in this, is that's why we have to put more people in Medicare. Because what we have to do is we have to expand that because healthcare is so expensive. So they drive up the prices by their techniques, and then they turn around and say the only way that these can be paid for is if the government does it. So he's saying, you know, insulin's too expensive. It should be, you know, they're only they're costing only thirteen dollars. So we're going to make them lower their cost for Medicare. So are you saying that they're not going to do that, or that there's going to be like if they are they not going to say like okay, it's twenty five dollars. Or is there some other – are they not going to do that, or is there some other effect that you're saying is causing the problem? Absolutely. With insulin, they're going to reduce it to $35, probably, or they'll stop producing it, depending on what the government cost is. So a lot of times they do this, and that creates a shortage, and then they set the price again, and they keep setting it higher. Insulin's going to be like the loss leader for the for Big Pharma, would be my guess, is that they'll be, continue to produce it because that's what President Biden is using to get them to increase the prices effectively of all the other drugs. And part of the thing that we forget is, so like when I go to Nigeria, you talk to people that buy used cars, and they go, American used cars are not like German used cars, which are like the second best used cars. They're like a used car from Germany. That's really used. Used cars, what we would call used cars in the United States, they're practically new. 
compared to the rest of the world. When somebody in Germany will get rid of their car on average, it's far later than the U.S. It will be used far more than cars in the U.S. are used before they're considered this isn't worth it anymore. And we're the richest country. We pay more for cars. So you can turn around and say our cars are more expensive. You know, everything's more expensive here because we can afford newer stuff. So we have newer stuff. We have newer drugs. We have newer cars. We have, right? And it's it's part of being the leaders, being the richest is, you know, the person who's wealthier, they have the nicer house than the person who's poorer. And as a nation, we're wealthier than any other nation. So we look wealthier. When, if you believe in capitalism in the free market, then you understand that the thing that will drive prices down is competition, not government price control. Right. It's government like that's price about control. as basic of a definition as you get. Is, of is socialism? It, yeah. Or well, uh, actually, technically, it's fascism, right? It's where the government sets all the prices. So okay. he's, he's promoting and saying that a fascist idea will solve the cost of health care. It won't. Right. They it, don't it, we're work. not that much of a capitalist nation anymore. I mean, that's no, just we're one far thing more that socialist. we talk about being capitalist. And I mean, so if you looked in that room, a very small percentage of even the Republicans are really pure capitalists. I mean, and there are some in there who actually still are, but I mean, we're not that capitalist of a nation well, anymore. Well, welfare capitalists. Right. So as he talks about bringing health care down, he also talked about how Obamacare was such a success because it brought health care down. But it didn't bring health care down. It went up faster than what they said was projected before Obamacare was passed. So just like those plans and their what they produced, that's the same expectation that we should have for these. You're going to save money, save money, save money. Oh, wait, it was twice as expensive as we expected. And that was even with a lot of Obamacare being dismantled. I mean, there, right. were, there were significant portions of it that were torn up, and it still caused this, this increase. Right, because HSA's health savings account and the high deductible, that's how health insurance was being reduced. And when Obamacare was passed, they were trying to eliminate that completely. Right. And that's what the last 15 years before that, that's what actually reduced costs. But then it got dismantled enough that you could still continue to have this. I mean, I'll, I'll say this about HSAs. I mean, you know, so we have a, a high deductible plan at our work. And I remember the first time we, you know, the work puts a certain amount of money into it each, you know, each week. We can put money into it. And there's this part of it where you have to go out and shop. And I mean, and I know that basically from our perspective, we would go out, we needed a, we needed an MRI. We called three places. One place had an MRI for a thousand. One place had an MRI for 12, for like 1200. And one place had an MRI for like $200. Do you want to guess? Which one did you go to? <laughs> right? I mean, and there's this part of it where, I mean, honestly, my, my immediate takeoff of this was if they said they would switch everybody in America to an HSA, even if the government said we're going to put money in their account, but the, but the money went into their account and they could only spend it on medical stuff, I'd almost support that tomorrow because it would, it would transform the entire medical – I mean, it would transform the face of medicine in America immediately because people treat their money differently than they do someone else's money. I think it was Indiana. It was one of the states that basically said that the state's healthier costs, they could – donate into everybody's HSA account the deductible for the insurance and pay for the insurance and it would be cheaper than the other plans. That's how much difference there is in price because the government backs out because the insurance companies back out of the first you know, 10000 that you spend right. or whatever. And that's how much of a difference it makes. I mean, it's pretty shocking. It, I mean, so, I mean, I just, I just know it was as much as there was annoyance with the idea of it and things like that, it, 
it caused a sudden fundamental shift in the way you thought about all your services because now you could actually think about saving money, whereas before it really was immaterial. Which, you know, it's an, an annoyance. It's like, you mean I ha- when I'm buying a car, you have to look at the price? Right, and, right. Like, no, negotiate no. with the person? Like, what are you talking about? And I mean, it was crazy. presented as an annoyance, but right. In the end, I mean, it's it's the fact that you actually own something and you care about it. I mean, you have to appreciate the rhetorical flair of calling this the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, that that's really about price controls and market controls, but we're going to call it the Inflation Reduction Act, totally ignoring the, the real source of inflation. And really, the main thing that it did was it expanded the number of IRS agents, and it did all kinds of stuff for climate change. It had nothing to do other than printing more money. It had nothing to do with inflation. Right. It's kind of like calling a late-night pizza the Heartburn Reduction Act. You know? I mean, it's... it's <laughs> It's like you said, it's it, it's pretty gutsy. Yeah, you know, the next part is where he's talking about social security, and this was the most raucous part of the, the speech and the response of the House to the speech. Some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it, unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans, want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. You know, it means if. If Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they'd go away. Other Republicans say, I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look, folks, the idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. <laughs> Folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be stopped. All right. Social Security and Medicare are a lifeline for millions of seniors. Americans have to pay into them from the very first paycheck they started. So tonight, let's all agree and apparently we are. Let's stand up for seniors. Stand up and show them. We'll not cut Social Security. We will not cut Medicare. Those benefits belong to the American people that earned it. And if anyone tries to cut Social Security, which apparently no one's going to do, and if anyone tries to cut Medicare, I'll stop them. I'll veto it. And look, I'm not going to allow them to take away, be taken away. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. But apparently it's not going to be a problem. Obviously, the Republicans did not like hearing him say that. And part of it is it was, I'm not sure how you say it other than incredibly deceitful. They came out weeks ago and said that, you know, in the budget negotiations for 2023, Social Security and Medicare were off the table, that they weren't going to be considered. You know, the House already said that after McCarthy became speaker. So for him to say, oh, it's good to see that there's a conversion, that was blatantly false. I mean, 
there's just no other way to put it. And when he's saying, oh, I'm not naming them to be polite. Well, that's not that how it works. That was also false. When, you know, when, it's, when most of them would not even consider suggesting it, you know, suggesting doing anything like that, to then say all the rest have suggested it. But I'm not, some of them, but I'm not going to say who. You know, that's just trying to And the person who the said same. it would probably be glad to be called out on it because he started to talk about it the next day. <laughs> right. I mean, like, I mean, right. It wasn't to be nice to him. It was to not give him any attention because he doesn't want to draw attention to someone who actually wants to talk about a major problem that needs to be addressed. But that's not even what Rick Scott's plan was, right. was to deal with it. What Rick Scott said is that we need to go back to zero base budgeting, not annually zero-based budgeting, which is what Jimmy Carter insisted upon. And he forced the executive branch to do it, even though the legislative branch would never adopt it. And they kept doing a percent change. So when they talk about the budget being reduced, what they're really saying is we projected that we'd increase the budget by 5%. We're going to increase the budget by 4%. And so we're going to say there was a 1% budget reduction. Right. We're going to borrow less money next year than we planned on borrowing. So therefore, we saved money, which is a complete lie, right? Right. There's no other way. We overspent less than we thought we would. And so even Jimmy Carter said, this is not how you do budgeting. What you do with budgeting is you start with zero and say, where are we going to spend our money? What Rick Scott said is every five years, you have to, you basically, everything disappears every five years and you have to reauthorize it so that you're going, we're going to continue to choose to spend money. That includes Social Security and Medicare. That includes everything in the federal government. But he was basically trying to do what Jimmy Carter was trying to do the last time we had inflation, like Biden's inflation, in the late 70s, because he said you have to get government spending under control. And that was his suggestion. So it's kind of interesting that Biden is so against Jimmy Carter's position, because that's a lot closer to where Rick Scott is, where Jimmy Carter was. Only he wants to paint him not about trying to reduce the size of the government, but about sunsetting, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, all the welfare programs. But they're not sunsetted. They just have to be reauthorized. So it's a very deceitful language. So if you want to if you want to dig into some of these topics, you know, into more depth, we have an episode on why conservatism should die. That's tied to where Jimmy Carter and Rick Scott are is that conservatism has moved that now we're championing a position that was held by a, a, a Democrat in the 70s. If you want to dig into the debt limit and, and, and Social Security, we did an episode a couple of weeks ago on why the debt limit matters and enslaving our children. So, I mean, both of those are really good episodes to just talk about those specific subjects more. But in terms of sunsetting, it has nothing to do with getting it under control. And it has to be gotten under control. What President Biden is saying there is this is a major problem that is going to cause serious financial disruption to the country in the next five or six, seven, eight years, and I'm just going to ignore it. That's what he said. That's not what it sounds like. People are going, oh, yeah, he's protecting him. He's actually not protecting him. He's acting very much like a crass politician rather than a statesman that's actually trying to solve problems. This is a real contrast with the insulin medicine. So, I mean, insulin, he's talking about something that's very small and making it seem very big. And this is a major thing that we're doing here with this, with Social Security. It is a, I mean, this is where the bulk of our, our national debt is. And he does not even want to think about it at all. And I mean, so this is, you know, we're going to make take something tiny. We're going to make it huge. We're going to take something huge and go, we can't even begin to talk. How could we even begin talking about this? This is ridiculous. And it's not ridiculous. It's one of the most pressing things that we could actually discuss. But you know, but the issue with this is, I um, mean, an issue that's been around for, well, since 
the government decided to give people free stuff, which is once you start a welfare program, you basically can never get rid of it. Yep. And you can never cut it. You know, back, you know, the f- famous phrase from the Roman Empire was food and was was uh bread and circuses. Cuz there was a famine and they started giving out bread because people were starving and then you know, hundreds of years later when Rome is collapsing, they're still giving out bread and they're still putting on government entertainments and because no matter what fiscal problems they had, they would not cut. They could not cut those things because people would not accept the fact that the government is no longer giving us free stuff. Right. And the reality is, is that everybody knows if you, I would personally be, give, let the people take care of themselves, they'd be much better off than having the government take it because the government takes 60% of it and skims it and does everything else. But if you're going to have the government do it, everybody knows the solution that's going to have to be going to. The life expectancy has increased dramatically. You have to increase the age at which you can start to take Social Security right. and take Medicare. Everybody knows it. But yet, instead of actually going and saying, this is what we have to do so that people will have it in 20 years, they just go, we're not touching it. Which basically means that it's, you know, at some point taxes are going to get more more onerous than they already are to the point where the working class just is going to stop working. One of the things that he talked about later in the speech was was about the borders. And so he had a very different portrayal of the borders than most people are looking at the borders right now. We now have a record number of personnel working to secure the border, arresting 8,000 human smugglers, seizing over 23,000 pounds of fentanyl in just the last several months. We've launched a new border plan last month. Unlawful migration from Cuba Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela has come down 97% as a consequence of that. But American border problems won't be fixed until Congress acts. If we don't pass my comprehensive immigration reform, at least pass my plan to provide the equipment and officers to secure the border. And a pathway to citizenship for dreamers. Those on temporary status, farm workers, essential workers. President Biden wants to use these certain statistics, like the number of illegal crossers from Cuba Cuba is down by 97%. That's because he assumes asylum for everybody, and everybody comes in and asks for asylum. So that doesn't mean that the number of people from Cuba has reduced that much. That just means the ones that aren't smart enough to say we want asylum, that's what he's reduced. So he's very much portraying the border as it's very secure. But everybody knows that's just flat out not true right now. It's never been so insecure. We've never had the same number of illegals coming into this country. He very quick to give asylum, illegally asylum, because you're not allowed to give asylum except on government persecution. But they'll give asylum if your husband beats you. That's reason for asylum. If you live in a dangerous neighborhood, that's reason for asylum. If you can't find a job, that's reason for asylum. Not according to the law, but according to what President Biden's doing on the border. So when he talks about how he's basically saying we've sealed off the border, but it's just blatantly not true, not the way – most people would actually consider it. It's right. very porous right now. I might be wrong, but I thought in the last election, he Trump was the strength in the border candidate and Biden was not the strength in the border candidate. And so how, how are we now hearing that he is all about strengthening the border and Congress is stopping him from getting more funding for border? Like, are we? But, but what, what President Trump wanted to do was build a wall which actually stops people. 
what Biden wants to do is increase the number of people so that you can process more asylum claims and get them into the country faster. But it's a very different result of what he's going to do with those Border Patrol agents. He's going to say we've caught more illegals and we've stopped more illegals. But the reality is if 99 out of 100 know all they have to do is ask for asylum and come up with an excuse why they need asylum and they'll be let into the country, you need a lot of border agents to do that. So he acts like that's reducing immigration, illegal immigration, but the way he defines illegal immigration, it it might reduce illegal immigration, but it won't reduce non-legal immigration. So when I think of a border patrol agent, I think of somebody who's, you know, wearing Kevlar and olive colors and maybe as a German shepherd patrolling a border, working at a checkpoint. And you're, re- you're telling me that really those the increase in number of border patrol agents is really more bureaucrats. Well, or like when you go from a country to another country, there's people there. And if you go to those points, and what he's trying to do is increase the flow at those points and to get more people to go through those points. And so what he's trying to do is say, we'll have a bunch of people sitting at that border crossing that when you come in and you say, I want asylum, they'll fill out the paperwork and they'll say, you'll have a trial in 10 years. Intake processing agents, basically. Yeah. And and so he wants to increase the staff at the the legal crossings to do more asylum claims so that he can process more people through the asylums so that they can claim asylum. So there will be fewer people entering the country illegally. Even though what he's doing isn't legal. Right. He is doing it illegally because he's accepting asylum claims that should not be accepted. We've moved where the illegality is happening. Exactly. It used to be that the people had to commit a crime to come to the nation, and now the, the government commits the crime to bring them into the nation. So if you want to dig into this deeper, there's an episode we did on immigration. And there's also an episode on fighting for meaning where we talk about how language and words really, really matter. I mean, and, and, and there's a part of this where, I mean, one of the reasons why we do these episodes and go through the State of the Union is, like you said, you're setting the tone for the nation. He's setting, and to make it so other people don't have to listen to the speech. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but, I mean, these thoughts, our, our president is saying these things. And these thoughts, Christians should think about what our leaders are saying. And they should inform our thoughts which informs our prayers, which informs, you know, the things that we talk about with our family, the things we talk about in our church, because these things really matter. The church needs to listen to these things and hear them and go, this is the truth, and proclaim the truth and speak the truth back against these things. And so there's this part of it where this is why these things matter, is because the church needs to be speaking not against President Biden, but against the lies that are being told by sometimes by both sides, because right, there's times no. where both sides stand up and clap. And the reason they're clapping is because they all know there's a lot of lying going on that neither side really wants to touch. And the church needs to be willing to touch those lies. But if you listen to this, I mean, getting back to it, you listen to it on the border and it sounds like the border is all nice and secure and everything's wonderful. And that's not the view of the American people. That's nothing else. But He's trying to spin a story out there, and this one I would argue is very strictly for his base, that his base, he wanted his base to think, yes, the border is secure. When he talks about the border, he he introduces it by talking about all of these drugs that are stopped at the border. Well, just a few minutes later, he wanted to talk about the opioid crisis, so let's listen to that. Joining us tonight is a father named Doug from Newton, New Hampshire. He wrote Jill, my wife, a letter, and me as well about his courageous daughter, Courtney. A contagious laugh, his sister's best friend, her sister's best friend. He shared a story all too familiar to millions of Americans and many of you in the audience. 
Courtney discovered pills in high school. It spiraled into addiction and eventually death from a fentanyl overdose. She was just 20 years old. Describing the last eight years without her, Doug said, there's no worse pain. Yet their family has turned pain to purpose, working to end the stigma and change laws. He told us he wants to start a journey toward American recovery. Doug, we're with you. Fentanyl is killing more than 70,000 Americans a year. So let's launch a major surge to stop fentanyl production in the sale and trafficking with more drug detection machines, inspection cargo, stop pills and powder at the border. What they said is you should eliminate the stigma of being an opioid addict. That is very evil towards the opioid addicts because all of a sudden they're telling them that there's nothing they can do. They're telling them that it wasn't this girl's choice to get, she just discovered the pills and then they went into the spiral of addiction for all due. She was courageous. Right. She was courageous instead of she was somebody who her father failed her, which is part of why he's doing what he's doing is because there's things he could have done to try to rescue her if she's busy using drugs in high school. And the solution now is you make it so that there's no stigma attached to it. That's the way to have more die. And his plans are horrific. What his plans are is to continue to keep the borders between the checkpoints open, which is where most of the fentanyl comes through because a lot of it has come through in bags that people carry because you can carry a few bags and basically pay for your trip with a, with a drunk ride or a mule. They're not going to go through the checkpoints. And so he's doing, it's a lot of show with a lot of expense. It's not actually going to reduce the amount of fentanyl here. You're saying, most, significant of the, you're saying most of the, most of the drugs that are coming across the border are coming across the border, not at checkpoints. Right. Because if they were at a checkpoint, they get caught, they get arrested. Right. Or they get banned so that they later, they get, their name gets put on a list where later if they sneak in and they see that name on the list, they can't apply for asylum. So they don't come bringing fentanyl at a checkpoint because it's too high of risk when you can just walk across the border. I mean, the border isn't that hard to get across. It's pretty porous. Right. And we don't. And the other thing is if you want to do it, so they used to have drones that flow, flew across the border. So they could count pretty accurately how many unarrested people there were, unobstructed, where they just walked into the United States. Guess what, what President Biden did over the last two weeks or something? Doubled the drones? No. He said, he said we're not going to have drone surveillance anymore, which means guess what? The number of people that they're saying came into the country without getting caught went to zero because they stopped counting them. I mean, and that's where the fentanyl comes in. So this is all this is all deceitful, and it will really cause people to die. We need to understand that. When you start to tell people it's not your fault, there's nothing you can do about it, you just are in the spiral of addiction, you're just going down, there's nothing you can do, instead of saying you're making choices that are killing you. When you say that, your sin is killing you. When you don't say your sin is killing you, you end up participating in 
their murder and their death. And lying to fathers and telling them they don't have a responsibility toward their children. They don't have a – I mean, with the whole – I mean, now they've gotten to the point where if your child wants to change genders, you can't speak out against it. You shouldn't be allowed to speak out against it. So, you know, I mean, there's all these things right. where they're so, telling people who have real responsibility toward their children, who have actual responsibility from God to care for their children and look out for them and do these things. They're telling them – you can't do that. All you can really do afterward is grieve and mourn the loss of your courageous child who succumbed to this. That's really your only recourse. And, I mean, the thing is, he doesn't have a solution to it because they, I mean... You can't well, legislate that, right? Because, right? I mean, virtually none of them have a solution to it. Because, I mean, you know, trying to be stricter about catching more people with drugs. I mean, he says he's a capitalist. He should know that, you know, if there's a huge demand for something, you know, the supply will rise to meet it. And, you know, maybe fewer people will get it, but still a lot of people will get it because it's – how are you going to stop people from bringing it in for manufacturing? Medicare, fentanyl, and that will increase the cost. <laughs> 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 that's, that's the only way we can solve it. But that's it. part of what they said with, with uh, marijuana too, right, is that right. that's what we'll do. We'll legalize it and that way. The taxes will go up on it, and now there's a huge black market for marijuana. Because people are trying to avoid that. People forget that there was a huge black market for cigarettes when cigarette taxes were 100% of the cost of the cigarette. Right. I mean, it's it's just a naive view of the world that you can control these things. And what you really need to do, and that's going to save lives. Plus, you have, in the case of fentanyl, you have China pumping it into Mexico as an attack on the United States. And so there, that's where the fentanyl gets produced is in China. They have a long history of opioids. And then it gets pushed across the border. You have Biden intentionally shut down the eyes so that you can't see it coming across the border. You put these things in a place that most of it's not coming through. This is all this whole theatrical production that is not going to do anything. And the reason they can't do anything is because they won't say the person using the opioid is responsible. They all say it's just uncontrollable and it's just a lie. They choose to do it. You can dry them out, and they'll go right back to it because they want it. If you want to dig into that a little bit deeper, we did an episode on the power of shame. <laughs> and, I mean, we were talking about that shame is a, shame is a powerful tool. What is this? You, you thought we were not doing the State of the Union. You thought we were doing the marketing podcast podcast. We've covered a lot of things that really do relate to a lot of these issues. And so there's this part of it where in this episode we're touching on them. But, I mean, but we have whole episodes, I think, where we've, we've talked about drug use. We've, talked, we've done a couple episodes on drug use. I mean – all of these things, I mean, our, our goal really is to try to address the issues that are going on in America and saying God's word speaks to all these things. We're supposed to take every thought captive. And, and through the course of podcasting, we've talked about many of the things Biden talked about, many more than these these five highlights that we've talked about here. You know, we've talked about free college and how damaging that is. We've talked at length about Ukraine, et cetera. And, and so when you then come to a speech by the president, you can say, okay, yeah, I've thought about this. I know that there's some consequences to this. And that's, you You want as a Christian, that's your responsibility is either have to have thought about it beforehand or once somebody says something like this that is really supposed to be vision casting, supposed to be defining for your country to say, I wonder what scripture has to say about this. I wonder what God would think about this. I wonder what the consequences are of if we do this, where's that coming from? Because God created a world where there are certain actions and consequences and that you can't just make them go away by changing the words. Right. And I mean, one of the things that you see here is like 
President Biden uses pretty much, you know, we have the seven ways to deceive podcast just to throw out another <laughs> podcast. And he pretty much uses all the techniques in there. Right. I mean, they're very common. He uses them. President Biden really operates on the basis that Americans aren't paying any attention at all. That and they not just without cause. Hear. And not without cause. I'm not saying he's <laughs> right. wrong. I'm just saying it's, it's, it is judgment from God on our country that we have men like Donald Trump and men like Joe Biden as president. It is so much an, an aspect of judgment that as a country we just think liars are good people that should be in control of us. The American people like to be lied to. And so we get the politicians that we get. We get the stories that we get because we don't want to deal with the really difficult problems that exist in the world. And part of that is because the culture reflects the church. And so often in the church, we don't want to deal with the difficult problems. We just want to go, we're all happy here. We're all fine here. Instead of saying, are we really worshiping the true God? Are we really practicing idolatry? Are we practicing true worship? Are we really loving one another by constraining each other's sins? Or do we just put on a happy face and say, I'm fine, and lie just like Joe Biden does? We should just recognize how frequent that is in the church, and until it's fixed in the church, we'll continue to have politicians like Joe Biden and like Donald Trump. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.